0: Welcome to the February 2018 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, with all the fake news in the world today, sometimes it's difficult to sort out the fact from the fiction. But for over 40 years, the Bay Area Reporter has been providing accurate accounting of the LGBT community here in the Bay Area and throughout California. It's one of the longest running printed publications of its kind. Tonight we talk with the assistant editor of the Bay Area Reporter, Matthew Bajako. He's going to tell us about the history of the paper and what they're currently covering in the ever-fascinating world of San Francisco politics. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, February
1: 25th, 2018.
0: This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of February 25th, 2018. Canadian Eric Radford became the first outgay athlete to win a gold medal at the Winter Olympics. Radford and his skating partner Megan DeHamel picked up the gold in the team figure skating event as they performed to Adele's Hometown Glory. Radford tweeted, quote, This is amazing. I literally feel like I might explode with pride. And U.S. skier Gus Kenworthy's casual kiss with his boyfriend at the Winter Olympics was broadcast on television and sparked an outpouring of love online. NBC aired footage of Kenworthy kissing Matthew Wilkes shortly before a qualifying run in last Sunday's Slope Style event. The 26-year-old Kenworthy came out in 2015 and is one of only two openly gay men competing for Team USA at this year's Games. He won a silver medal in the same event in 2014 at the Sochi Olympics in Russia and had planned to kiss his boyfriend then in a similar style. He ultimately decided against doing so. He told reporters this year that being able to be out at this year's games has made the experience so much more complete. And here in the U.S., LGBTQ Nation reported on a new website that launched last week titled Trump Dating. It made national news for denying membership to gay and bisexual people. The website's homepage features a picture of an opposite-sex couple including Barrett Riddleberger and his wife. Journalists researched the 50-year-old Riddleberger, and found that he had been convicted of child abuse that included being filmed having sex with a 15-year-old girl. Riddleberger and his wife were married three years after he was convicted in 1995 for, quote, taking innocent liberties with a minor, end quote. WRAL News asked Riddleberger about the website and his past. He told reporters that he had already paid his debt for something he did 25 years ago and refused to answer questions unless reporters promised to write only about the present, not the past. The website asks potential new users if they are a straight man or straight woman and also lets them choose between being either happily married or unhappily married. It goes on to say that, quote, We believe that by matching patriotic and political viewpoints as a base foundation of the relationship, it will allow one to focus on what really matters, conversation, commonalities, and all that goes well, courting. The same core values is absolutely essential if you are truly searching for a real life-changing relationship, end quote. And the advocate reports that peaceful protesters crashed a Friday lecture at Harvard University with Jackie Hill Perry, a Christian activist and poet who encourages people to ignore their same-sex attractions for Jesus' sake. At least two dozen people held LGBT-affirming signs during the talk with Hill Perry, which was sponsored by a group called Harvard College Faith in Action. Bill Perry proclaims on her website that she was, quote, saved from a lifestyle of homosexual sin, end quote. And in her talk at Harvard, she referred to queer people as broken. For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Staying informed in these tumultuous times is both important and challenging, and finding solid and reliable news sources is critical to being able to sort out fact from fiction. The Bay Area Reporter has been covering our local LGBT community for over 40 years, and here to tell us more about the paper is the assistant editor for the Bay Area Reporter, Matthew Bajako. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here tonight. Before we get talking about the Bay Area Reporter, tell us about how you came to the Bay Area. And when you started?
2: Well, I'm originally from Connecticut, and I moved to San Francisco twenty years ago uh, in January of 1998 uh, ended up getting a job with a local newspaper in the East Bay, uh, which I worked out for a couple years, and I started a week before 9 eleven and uh, I have to say, it's been nonstop ever since. <laughs>
0: I bet. Talk about jumping right into it. Yeah. Uh, and The Bay Reporter's been around a long time. Uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it or maybe are new to the North Bay here, give us a little bit of the history of the paper.
2: So it launched in 1971, and uh, we've been uh, continuously publishing every week ever since. Uh, we're one of the one of the oldest uh, LGBT newspapers in the country. Um, Our founding publisher, Bob Ross, passed away back in 2003, Uh, and uh, the legal counsel for the paper, who was a good friend of Bob's, Uh, Tom Horn, then uh, took over as the publisher of the paper, and he oversaw the Bob Ross Foundation, which uh, at the time technically owned the paper, but uh, under California law, uh, it had about five years in order to find a buyer. And uh, a deal was made a couple years uh, into that five-year period where our longtime kind of office manager, Michael Yamashita, was able to become the majority owner of the newspaper. Um, And the other majority owners was the foundation and two gentlemen who used to work at the San Francisco Examiner. Just at the end of last year, the two uh, straight men who... uh, Co-owned the paper, sold their ownership to Michael. So Michael now is is basically the full owner of the Bar, and he is uh, uh, a gay Asian uh, American man, and, and one of the few people of color to run a LGBT newspaper in the country. So we're really proud of the the fact that Michael, you know, was able to purchase the paper and is from the community which is really important when i think you're covering the lgbt community here in the bay area and and you know we really cover california um and the nation
0: sure now where is the paper physically based at where are your offices
2: we're in san francisco like a block away from the lgbt community center off of market street
0: a great location right in the center of it all for sure so the paper's been around since 1971. Uh, it's really become a history book then of all of the major events that have happened in the LGBT community in the last 40 years, wouldn't you say?
2: Uh certainly. And another really uh great project that we just uh un- unveiled this year is the Bob Ross Foundation had partnered with the GLBT Historical Society to assist them in buying um, the scanning equipment required to scan all of the uh, archival issues of the BAR going back to the very first one. And those are now uh, being uploaded online uh, at the GLBT Historical Society's website and on the Internet Archive and at the California Digital Newspaper Collection, I believe is it. So researchers... Book writers, uh, you know, poets, film people, historians, even you know, students working on projects can now easily go and look up all of our stories that we've written over the years. Uh, whereas before, in order to do that, you had to physically come to San Francisco and either go and look at the archived copies at the GLBT Historical Society or go through the old microfiche copies of the paper. That are stored at the reading room, the newspaper reading room at the San Francisco Main Public Library. Here,
0: mm. well, I can tell you as a teacher who teaches an LGBT studies program in Napa, having that as a resource for my students is going to be invaluable.
2: Yeah, the, uh, when I did the story announcing that this finally had launched, uh, the GLBT Historical Society executive director kind of joked with me that he was giving a he had been giving you know, cur- courtesy calls to politicians and community leaders to give them a heads up that certain stories of theirs uh, that they thought maybe had been buried are now searchable uh, at the click of uh, a computer keyboard now.
0: Now, if that's not a good reason to start getting in there and looking around, I don't know what else is. That's pretty good. Well, you've certainly seen journalism change a lot. I mean, uh, it's gone from print to digital. Um, Everybody's a reporter now, you know, on social media. And there's so much news out there, some of it completely made up and some of it somewhere in between, and then there's the truth. And we've talked on the show a lot about you know, how do you sort out the fact from the fiction. Give us your perspective on that. What's, what's the best way for a consumer of news to sort out fact from fiction?
2: Well, I think you have to go to um, sources that you trust. And there are established media outlets that wherever you live, you are well-known. And and for the most part, you know, sure, we all make mistakes, um, but, you know, journalists and credible news agencies go out of their way when we do make a mistake to correct it and, and to learn from those lessons and move forward. But at the end of the day, we're out there to inform people, not to confuse people or manipulate people. Um, whereas there are these fake websites that, Try to pretend that they're legitimate news sources when they are nothing more than just a mouthpiece for an ideological group or a politician. Or, you know, they're not—they're not there to educate. They're to sway and and form opinions.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, so my, you know, my advice is when you see something posted by a friend or a family member on you know your Twitter account or in on Facebook. Really, first, before you read the headline, check the source.
0: And so for you, someone who's been in this industry for an awful long time, uh, tell us what your go-to sources are. Where do you go for news beyond the stories that you're covering personally?
2: Well, I subscribe to the email um, and social media accounts of the main LGBT newspapers across the country. So uh, like the Washington, D.C. Blade uh, their sister publication in LA, the um, the LA Blade. Um, I also the Windy City um, Times in Chicago, the um, Atlanta Atlanta Voice or the Georgia Voice. I, don't, I can't remember. They changed their name um, several times, but so that's where I, I go and I I um, read what they're reporting on. Uh, in addition to you know the mainstream press you know, has has been doing a better job of covering LGBT stories. So I am a subscriber, you know, daily to the New York Times. And I also um, get the Los Angeles Times email daily newsletter in the mornings. I also get um, Politico's California newsletter. And I, what else do I look at? As far as the, for, for, Or kind of less – well, it's kind of a mix because they do cover, you know, arts and entertainment and what I like to call fluffier news stories. But I also – the two main gay blogs that I read on a daily basis are QWERTY and Toll Road.
0: Mm -hmm. They've been around a long time. Yeah. And what about social media? I mean, I think one of the traps that that I've fallen into is a story will pop up. Maybe it's from uh, an LGBT publication, something that someone has shared and I'll see the headline. I'll get immediately emotional about it. And then once I click into it, I see, oh, this is something that was printed three years ago. It's not a new story. It's that old story back then. Um, but but individuals are making their own news and, and propagating it on social media. What's the solution around that? Are we just going to be stuck with that, do you think? And uh, we just have to become more discerning or... You know, do these uh, service pro- providers like Twitter and Facebook have some responsibility to do some quality control?
2: Well, I think that the, the adage you learn as a, in journalism school <laughs> uh, goes for anything in life. And, and you're probably well aware of it. But, you know, when, you, when you're taking Journalism 101, there's this fun joke that everyone likes to say that, so your mother told you that she loves you, get a second source. And, and that's why, you know, we, have, we as journalists have to verify and check um, the facts that people are putting out there, because it may not be 100% the case, and their, their recollection of the event that happened may not be exactly accurate, excuse me, I don't share anything immediately that somebody you know, has posted it on social media uh, until you know, we verify it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think you make a good point about the interpretation. It's, it's the example I always like to give. CNN and Fox News can report on exactly the same story, and it sounds like two entirely different stories.
2: Well, that happens all the time with local, local news as well, and that's why it's also good to support you know, your local news organizations, because you you do want to get a different take. And so, you know, I'll, I'll look at, um, you know, I, I also check various news aggregator sites for California, since that's our main coverage, you know, focus. Okay. And you'll see the same story reported on, say, by the San Jose Mercury News and the San Francisco Chronicle with completely different headlines. So, you know, the, the reporters obviously have their own take on a story and and perhaps they also are their take is kind of influenced by what city they're reporting from so sometimes you know the same event can look very differently if you're in San Francisco or if you're in San Jose for instance
0: right and and so how's the paper evolved in terms of responding to the electronic age? Obviously the print copy, I always like that. I like to have something in my hand when I'm when I'm reading it, but it's not the most timely way to get a story out. So you have a website as well. Talk about what you're doing in terms of your own uh broadcast on social media of, of the news.
2: Well, when I first started at the BAR, we didn't even have a website. <laughs> <laughs> so Um, Bob Ross, you know, the founding publisher, didn't even really use a computer. So uh, that was one of the first things we did after he passed away and Tom Horn became the publisher is we launched, you know, our own website. Um, When the web first came about, uh, I think it was either Planet Out or Gay.com, they hosted very rudimentary sites for a bunch of the LGBT newspapers around the country, where they would, you know, post stories and things, but it, it wasn't anything to write home about. And over the years, you know, we've de- redeveloped the website, added it, changed it. We're, uh, I believe, set to launch a, a revamped website uh, sometime this year, which we hope we'll be able to post a lot more video because that's kind of where um, a lot of uh, print publications are moving to—is being able to. To post more video on their own websites so that you know is either taken by their own staff or or if a video you know comes in that is germane to your story you know you can host that and and let people view that uh, directly on our own website. We also you know we utilize Facebook, uh, we utilize Twitter. Um, I don't think we've really started to use Instagram all that much. And you just never know what the next thing is going to be that you're going to have to respond to. Uh, Every Thursday, you know, we do send out uh, an email with links to stories because that's another, um, you know, for people who, who don't live in the Bay Area or don't have easy access to where we deliver the printed copies of the paper. You know, here they can, you know, open up their computer on every week and and there's the links to the the stories and it's also an added bonus to our advertisers as well so
0: nice nice well let's shift gears a bit and talk about some current news and maybe some local san francisco politics which is always interesting um and and there's a big mayor's race coming up
2: yes there is
0: so tell us, uh, give us some perspective on how you see things evolving in this, uh, race. Certainly, uh, tragically losing Ed Lee and maybe moving all of the fundraising efforts up for candidates, uh, quite a bit, uh, was a challenge.
2: Right. So, so that your listeners understand what, what happened, uh, Ed Lee was in, in the middle of his second term, uh, and we have term limits, so his term was going to be up in the very beginning of January of 2020, meaning that we were set to elect a new mayor in 2019 on the November ballot. When uh, Mayor Lee unexpectedly died of a heart attack on December 12th, uh, under our city charter, that triggered having a special election at the next ballot so for us that means it's the june primary ballot and it's uh truncated what you know people were were thinking would be about a two-year or a year and a half campaign down to really five months because the filing deadline was january 9th uh Former lawmaker, uh, state lawmaker and and supervisor Mark Leno is vying to become the city's first openly gay mayor. Uh, He had already launched his campaign back in 2017 in the spring, almost a year ago, to run for what had, you know, been expected to be the 2019 race. So by the end of last year, he had already accumulated over $400,000 in donations that he can now apply towards this year's race in June. Uh, because of her being the uh, board president, Supervisor London Breed automatically became acting mayor upon uh, the death of Ed Lee. She decided to run for mayor in June as well, and then held a vote at the end of January to um, see if she could remain as either the acting mayor or um, serve as the interim mayor, and in that case, she would have given up her seat on the board and then appointed her own replacement in her supervisor's seat. But in a surprise move, the progressive ma- minority on the board teamed up with uh, and somewhat independent um, Supervisor Jeff Shee, who you know had been seen as aligned with London Breed and the moderate majority on the board, to elect... Uh, supervisor Mark Farrell as our as our interim mayor. So now he pledged not to run for the seat. He didn't enter the race, and they wanted to have a level level playing field for all of the mayoral candidates, so that nobody could claim to be the incumbent in the June race.
0: Fascinating. Uh,
2: another supervisor, Jane Kim, who's also uh, a progressive, is is running. As is a former supervisor, Angela Aliotto, who twice before lost races of her own to become mayor. And whose father, Joe Aliotto, was mayor um, back in uh, the late 50s, early 60s, I believe. Yep. Uh, so those are the four main candidates. There's a, a wildcard candidate in the race uh, who identifies as queer, Amy Farah Weiss. She's an advocate for affordable housing development and has been really critical of the four leading candidates in the race as being more of the same at City Hall, and that they're all well-known, tied-in, you know, politicians. She's never been elected. She ran against Ed Lee in the last race for mayor and lost. And we also have a Republican uh, candidate who entered the race who's pulling around 5%. But in San Francisco, with the mayor's race, as with the supervisor races, our city has what's known as an instant voter runoff system. So when voters go to the ballot in June, they'll be able to rank three candidates for mayor as one, two, and three. And what that means is that when when they process the ballots... We'll get the first results, and the likelihood is that nobody will have more than 50% of the vote just because there's eight people running, and, and it'll be very hard for somebody to to win on the first tally. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to do that, you need to have 50% plus one. So the next step will be that all of the the candidates with the least amount of votes— get kind of thrown out, and then their voters' second and third choices are then added to the tally. And we go in order until finally a candidate emerges with 50% plus one of the vote. So really, it's, it's, it could be anyone's race. And, you know, San Francisco, anything is possible when it comes to our political scene. Early polling shows that the the ones to watch right now are London Breed and Mark Leno. But Jane Kim has been running a, a really smart ground campaign and really focusing on the issues and getting a lot of uh, endorsements from progressive politicians and groups. And she's also, she came very close to winning our state Senate seat two years ago against a, a gay candidate, Scott Weiner, who mm-hmm. ended up winning. So I wouldn't count her out either. And um, right now... The main um, focus, you know, that we see in the in the mainstream press has been, you know, Mark Leno has been really out vocal against super PACs and having outside money influence the race. Uh, but, you know, people who support London Breed ha- are calling him a hip- hypocrite because he obviously entered the race with a huge amount of cash and a big financial advantage over the other three candidates who just formed their Campaign committees in January, and he's also taken super. You know, he's he's benefited from Super PAC money in the past. So, I mean, frankly, I don't think a lot of everyday residents of San Francisco are paying attention to the race. One, two, really care about Super PAC money. I mean, the the two big issues in the city right now that voters want to hear about is. How you're going to help them afford to live in San Francisco, and how are you going to address our homeless issue? Right, and, and we really—the only candidate that has really been, you know, focusing on that as far as you know, trying to get press coverage has been Jane Kim. While the other candidates seem to be fighting over these other kind of lesser issues in the race that you know gets them headlines, but I don't think it really is winning over kind of the nonchalant voter.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, it's still early days, and our paper has teamed up with the Horizons Foundation and KQED to host a mayoral candidate debate uh, in March at the Castro Theater. Um, That's going to be focused solely on LGBT issues. So I think that is going to be... Uh, really interesting conversation to see w- what the candidates have to say there. Uh, I know um, Parks groups are planning a mayoral debate focused on parks and the environment. You know there are other groups that will also be uh, having the candidates you know get together, and and so I think we will start seeing hopefully the conversation move into these meat and potato issues that people here in, in San Francisco are really concerned about and and talking about amongst themselves.
0: Right, right. And I want to come back to both of those issues because I think, you know, there's some connection between them, but they, I agree with you. They're they're astronomical issues, even from someone who doesn't live in the city but who visits. It's, it's a problem. Uh, but I have a question about, you know, Mark and the other candidate. In 2018, what role do you think their sexual orientation is going to even have in the – in the minds of voters. I mean, it's very different than when Harvey Milk first ran for the board of supervisors. What's your take on it today as being even important?
2: Well, you know, it was 40 years ago that Harvey was sworn in as the first openly gay elected official in San Francisco and in California uh, to the, to a seat on the board of supervisors here. So the timing is, is really fascinating to me as a, as you know, covering gay politics that now, you know, four decades later, we could finally see a a gay man elected mayor of San Francisco. Cause a lot of people would, would probably tell you that if Harvey hadn't been assassinated, he may have been elected mayor Mm -hmm. because he was on that trajectory. And because of, of his life being, you know, cut short in such a horrific fashion, there's a lot of pent up demand to see someone from the LGBT community lead San Francisco, which to the world over is seen as a gay Mecca. Uh, But because of various reasons, it's not easy to get elected in San Francisco uh, just on being a gay gay candidate. Um, So so there are a lot of uh, constituencies in the city. We have a, a very... Uh, engaged uh, Asian American community, and just like the LGBT community, they vote in record numbers. Uh, there's also, you know, the uh, the neighborhood I live in, which includes the Castro, uh, well, the district I live in, District 8, I live in Noe Valley, includes the Castro. There's a lot of uh, gay and lesbian people live there, but also a lot of middle-class white families, and mm-hmm. they also vote a lot, and it happens to be the district that Mark represented at City Hall when um, when it, he ran in 2000 and we reverted back to electing supervisors citywide to district again, uh, just like how Harvey won because they changed it to be district-based supervisor seats. And the coincidence here is that we also have, because Scott Wiener was elected to the state Senate in 2016, Mayor Lee had to appoint someone to fill that vacancy on the board. Well, that's the district eight seat, and the district eight seat election is on June. Well, that's a great boost to Mark's campaign because the people he used to represent have a have two reasons to go to the polls in June. To elect Interesting. and to elect their supervisor. So I think that's also one of the reasons why he's seen as having a really good shot because he also he already starts off the campaign with like a good base of support and votes. And for for 2 years now, I mean people have been expecting and 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 talking him up as the next mayor of San Francisco. So I think, you know, LGBT voters across the city are are going to be motivated to vote and, and and elect him. So uh how he does in the rest of the city, uh, it'll be like the, the key to his success, but you know he's he's run citywide, you know, for the state senate seat, so he's a he's a well-known entity. Uh, he he is one of these people who works hard when he he is campaigning, and he is everywhere. I mean, the joke with Mark is that he when he was in the state legislature that he had a mimeograph machine in the trunk of his car and he just like hand cranked out state proclamations <laughs> to give to every single group he would go to. And, um, you know, that's, that matters to people. It, people remember that. And, and, you know, it, it, it builds up a, a good, goodwill, and, and people gravitate towards you. So, right. um,
0: well, I agree. Yep. I, he is a hard worker. Uh, he was yep. very prolific with legislation that was meaningful, and he was successful with it. Uh, and and so I, I agree. It's going to be very interesting to watch this play out. And I didn't realize that the District 8 election was going to also happen at the same time. Are there candidates, standout candidates for that, or, or are there just a few? Who's running?
2: So it's two gay, gay candidates uh, because it's considered you know the gay seat on the board. And unfortunately, right now, Jeff Shee is the only gay uh, supervisor here in San Francisco. Um, uh, the uh, person who's running against him is Raphael Mandelman, an attorney who led the City College of San Francisco Board of Trustees in their fight to keep the school open when its accreditation was at risk. And he—he he is a Raphael is a candidate in the mold of Scott. He lost to Scott when um, they first ran against each other in 2010. And instead of you know being upset and just kind of giving up, Rafi pivoted and put in uh, almost the playbook that, that Scott had used to line up you know, his run for supervisor. Scott was the board chair of the LGBT Community Center. Raphael was the board chair of the LGBT Community Center. Scott was a co-chair of the more moderate Alice B. Toklas LGBT Democratic Club. Raphael was president of the more progressive Harvey Milk LGBT Democratic Club. I mean, so he he has spent the last you know almost eight years laying the groundwork to run for supervisor again. And Jeff Sheehy was kind of plucked from. Um, uh, his job as a as a activist around AIDS issues, and the spokesperson for the AIDS Research Institute at UCSF, to fill the the seat by Mayor Lee, because the person that he really wanted for the job pulled out, and the other people, I, from what I understand that they they were thinking of appointing, got mixed reviews when they went and talked to people in in the in the community. And would you like this person as supervisor? And, uh, you know, people that have worked with Jeff have, um, you know, so have been impressed and, and they know that he's really, you know, focused and around, um, fighting HIV and AIDS and other, you know, health issues and, and other, other causes in the city. But he actually hasn't really adjusted to being a politician and running a campaign, and he he readily admits that he's more an activist. He's not a career politician. You know, he, he doesn't want to run for higher office after being the supervisor, but um, he's he's really struggled to to get a campaign going off the ground. And uh, for the first time in um, eighteen years, both Alice and the Milk Club have endorsed Raphael for supervisor, which has never happened before in a district eight race
0: interesting wow wow well as you said never a dull moment
2: yeah and you know to tie it back into the mayor's race uh which you know may, maybe jeff shot himself in the foot but he declined to endorse uh mark leno for mayor last year and the reason he gave was because the mayor's race was was two years out is going to be in 2019 and he had to focus on you know, becoming the supervisor and having to run and, you know, trying, he was just focused on that. Well, in doing that and making that decision, he opened the door to Raphael who like early on endorsed Mark Leno. And then Mark Leno returned the favor in the fall and endorsed Raphael for supervisor. Interesting. And now you have Mark and Raphael running together on the same ballot. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I think at this point it looks like Jeff has a really hard road to climb to maintain his board seat, just because of the dynamics that he's facing now. The supervisor race doesn't get as much attention normally as a mayor's race, and so by Raphael being, you know, the chosen candidate of the the mayor con- candidate. That, I think that gives him a, a, a big advantage as, as, you know, Mark and Raphael can campaign together now at different events, you know, and, and, and just kind of help each other out as, as they run. Right. Whereas Jeff now, you know, and, and by Jeff, um, Jeff also by him teaming up with the progressives to, to oust London Breed as mayor, he also uh, upset a lot of moderate people in the city who don't quite understand why he didn't stick with the moderates on the board and keep London as mayor especially since everyone kind of views that decision as once again helping mark in the mayor's race because london can't run as the acting mayor or the sitting mayor you know and and have that aura of incumbency which you know sometimes definitely helps candidates if if they know how to Parlay that into getting support from voters.
0: Right. Well, one of the issues that everybody is going to have to talk about, whether you're running for a supervisor seat or their mayor's seat, is the problem of homelessness. Um, It is plagued every major city. Um, There are many cities in the Bay Area that are really struggling with it, whether you're a big city or a small city, even like Napa or Santa Rosa. Everybody has a homeless problem, and no one's been able to figure it out. Um, San Francisco, I think I read the figure they spend about three hundred million a year on the problem. What's your take? what what's the what are we what is not happening to solve the problem?
2: well, it's it's a complicated issue, and what you see on the street can give you a false sense of what is really going on with uh, the homeless situation here in San Francisco. And I think sometimes when people are walking around, san francisco during the daytime and they run into people who are panhandling or just hanging out on the street they instantly think that that person is living on the street but that isn't always the case because people who live in single room occupancy hotels here or in you know other types of housing that's that's provided to them that's what they do they don't they don't necessarily work they don't want to be in their small, you know, hotel room during the day. So we have beautiful weather here. It's very easy to go and hang out at outside and, uh, you know, panhandle to get some extra money to maybe you know get some food. I don't think everyone panhandling in this city is actually using that money for drugs. It's which is another kind of you know people just automatically go to when when they see that. So at night. It's very different. Like there are certain areas of town where you see the homeless during the day, and then at night, like in Noe Valley, you don't see any homeless because they've gone home. Uh, but then there are other areas of town where you do see the homeless who are living in tents. And one of the reasons for that is that the the areas where they used to be able to pitch their tents or or other you know makeshift structures to live in. We're hidden away in, in parts of the city that nobody really ever went to. But those par- those parts of town are being redeveloped. Mm. So they're pushed further into the core of the city um, because it's safer. You know, they're, they're, they can congregate with other people who are homeless. And uh, during the daytime, you know, it's easier to access the services that are in the central part of the city or... Be on the streets to to ask for change or or do whatever that they're going to be doing. Uh, also, you know, in our city, in the Castro in particular, during the daytime, you will see a lot of twenty um, somethings to to late teens hanging out on the streets with like big backpacks and dogs, and you know, <clears throat> they are kind of transients. They're they're not here. For for long, you know, they're they're kind of passing through uh, some are coming down from Mendocino because they get jobs working at the the pot farms up there. And then when the that's done, they kind of migrate south and then they'll go back. So it's 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 not as easy as like you can't just send somebody into the Castro and pick everybody up. And, and think you're solving home, the homeless situation. Right. Right. And. The other thing that the city has done a really good job at is, is housing homeless vets and ensuring that there's no families on the streets. So I think that the city has done a pretty good job in in those respects, but it's it's those hardcore people that refuse to go into shelters, go into what we have are called now navigation centers, where you can move in there with your dog, with your friends who you've made on the streets, you can keep all your belongings. And hopefully in three months' time, the city will be able to, to house you. Otherwise, you're, you're required to, to move out of the navigation center. But it's, it's a, a matter of geography that we don't have a lot of land in San Francisco. And because of that, there's a huge demand for all types of housing, no matter if it's low-income, to middle-class middle housing, to, you know, the McMansions. And I don't think that any of our previous mayors have really been able to find, you know, that, that final solution to, to, to really end the problem. And I think that, you know, whoever is elected mayor, that is definitely going to be at the top of the priorities list for them in their first term.
0: Yeah, I agree. It is a multi-layer, very complex problem. Um, And it seems that there's sort of a couple different schools of thought. One school of thought is pass ordinances that make it illegal to camp and move people along or kick them out. The other school of, of thought is we need to provide services and shelters and access. But neither seems to consider the idea that you can't have one without the other. You can't tell people they can't camp and or sleep outside without having a place to go. And yet you're not going to solve the problem unless you don't allow, unless you stop allowing people to camp. And, and, and that's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow depending upon which camp you're in.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's like, like I said, it's a tricky situation and there, there is, you know, whoever the next mayor will be, will have to find that middle road policy that addresses because in, in listening to all four of the, the main candidates talking, all of them agree that it's not humane to have people living on the streets. It's just not safe for them, right. for their health, or for their safety. Um, but how to get them off of the street into housing when they have the right to be on the street it, that's that's the crux of the issue. And so what you've seen here in San Francisco and, and state lawmakers now talking about, they're focusing now on, on those people who are homeless who have mental health issues and really need to be in, in some sort of uh, facility where they can have their mental health issues be addressed. And so that's why you saw um, just... In the last several days, uh, Wiener introduced the bill to make it easier to, to put those people into services, and um, London Breed uh, is introducing legislation through the board to actually move that responsibility over to the Department of Public Health. And uh, they're supposed to be designating more beds through the health system here in San Francisco. So that they have a place to, to house those people. The other issue that our city is moving forward on, which I think could potentially have a big impact on just the the street environments, uh, is opening the safe injection sites later this summer where um, inject, in, intra, intravenous drug users will be allowed to go indoors into a, a Facility overseen by health agencies that are are either nonprofits or privately run. It's it's not going to be staffed by city officials because of the the legal issues involved. But um, you know, to give them a place where they they can shoot up if they if they need to and and be be cared for and hopefully be kind of brought into reduction substance use. Reduction services, or harm reduction services, I should right. say.
0: Right. Well, and of course, there's the obvious health, um, the risk management pieces of that, which if they're getting fresh needles and not using old needles, then the risk of transmitting hep C and HIV and, and other things drops dramatically.
2: So there are other things that are happening that that are definitely, you know, will, will have an impact also on on just... The availability of housing here in San Francisco, the city finally clamped down on the home sharing sites and thousands of units that back in the day used to be rented out as apartments that then had been turned into, you know, tourist hotels, basically, are now um, offline. And so those owners of those units, I mean, the, the only course of action well, they have two courses of action now. They can either sit on those units and, and they're not going, you know, to get the income that they had been getting from from tourists, or they can put those back on the market for renters. So that'll be really interesting to see if if that has an impact this year on 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 the the rental stock in the city. And um, you know, under Mayor Lee and Mayor Farrell is continuing with this policy to fast track development projects in the city that have been approved. And I think a, a lot of people don't really understand how our planning process works here in San Francisco. I mean, number one, it is very hard just to even get your project before the Planning Commission because it's so busy. It only meets once a week. So you're waiting, you know, months to years before. Some of these big development projects even go before the planning commission to get approved. And then people in the, in the general public will see a headline or some, some post online that the project was approved at the planning commission and think, great, construction's going to start you know, next week. But in our city, then the developer has to actually go back to various city departments to get permits and that process can drag out for six months to a year, if not longer, before they even can break ground. And so the city has has started to try to address that to get these projects moving. Um, so you know, one of the fights we had two years ago was over a moratorium, you know, of housing in the mission. Which you know, some people said it was necessary. Other people said does nothing to address the problem, and the only thing that will help housing prices is to increase the inventory so you know the the city is moving in that direction you can't come to san francisco and not notice how different things are from probably the last time you visited and there is new housing going up in every part of town now
0: no doubt about it and the cost of that housing is changing the complexion of a lot of neighborhoods um the castro being one of them you have to you have to to notice the change. If you walk down the street, it's a very mixed crowd and very different than it was, you know, in, in those early years in the seventies and eighties.
2: Well, you also have to take into account that we lost an entire generation of gay men in the city due to AIDS back in the eighties and the early nineties before the AZT and other drugs came online. And so we kind of started at a deficit in terms of our LGBT community. We also, when I moved here in um, 1998, I think it was at the the end of the crest of seeing a lot of lesbians moving out of San Francisco over to the East Bay. And, um, you know, the Valencia corridor between the Mission and the Castro was, you know, the lifeblood of the lesbian community when I first moved here. And that's all gone now. And for those gay men who did survive AIDS and have, you know, either remained negative or because of the drugs have, have been able to uh, live into their golden years, you know, and, and starting to retire they're they're moving to places like Guernville or Palm Springs or Fort Lauderdale because it's, it's so much cheaper to to afford your lifestyle in those other cities, especially when you're retired and you're not you know having the same amount of income but on the flip side as as we see that migration out we're not I don't think seeing the same migration in anymore of younger LGBT people because of how much it costs to live in San Francisco and also for the very fact that they no longer have to live the cities and towns they grew up in because they can be visible in some of these smaller major cities in the Midwest or in the South, and they don't have to move to the coast in order to live out and proud as, as, you know, a member of the LGBT community anymore.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's a good thing. That's, that's a good thing.
2: But I think the Castro uh, will remain, you know, the city's major gay neighborhood for, a while, I think people are committed to the neighborhood, whether they're homeowners, they're business people. You know, with some of these new um, buildings that have gone up along Upper Market Street, along the Castro district, a lot of uh, empty nesters, uh, gay gay guys, you know, who maybe did have kids from previous relationships, and you know, they're now uh grandparents you know they they've wanted to move back into the city moved into some of those buildings uh so so the problem with this is that it's all anecdotal it's like you said it's like you're basing it on the fact that you're walking through the castro on a saturday afternoon well you know because we're not counted in the u.s census as gay lesbian bisexual transgender people we just don't have any accurate data to know how many LGBT people who live in the Castro move out every year or move in every year like you're able to do for almost any other group because the data is there in the census. Right. It's, it's one of my biggest frustrations as a reporter working at a gay newspaper covering the LGBT community because I wish we, we had access to that data. Uh, it's one of the, I I would say, the biggest disappointments to come out of the Obama administration that they were not able to get that um, onto the 2020 census, and now it's not even looking that good to see that question be added to the 2030 census. So it's really disheartening. The The only thing I can say is that here in California, and this has been another big story that I actually won a journalism fellowship uh, last year to, to cover, is the growth of state and local governments and other entities adding what we call SOGI questions to their own surveys and forms and data. And SOGI is... The acronym for sexual or orientation and gender identity. Oh, yeah, okay. So what that means is that there there was policies adopted here in San Francisco, and then at the state legislature, and signed into law um, by Governor Jerry Brown, that require all these state agencies and city agencies to start asking people if they identify as LGBT. Uh, San Francisco started it this past summer. Uh, The state agencies uh, that deal with health uh, have to start doing it by uh, this July. And then uh, the following year in 2019, the education and some uh, business focused uh, state departments have to start collecting that data as well.
0: Yes, well, I can tell you that the California Community College System started collecting that data a couple of years ago in their application process. The challenge has been getting the chancellor's office to release that data to the colleges to be able to use, but it sounds like everything is on track for that to happen and for us to have some comprehensive data.
2: So we may start getting a a, a better understanding of at least the, the LGBT population here in California.
0: Great. Well, I wish we had another couple of hours to uh, chat about news, um, but unfortunately we don't. Matthew, for our listeners who want to subscribe and start tracking the great news source at the Barry Reporter, where can they go?
2: The easiest is to go to ebar.com. It's our website, and on the website, you'll be able to sign up for the weekly newsletter. Uh, check out our uh, you know weekly coverage, and also you can download uh, uh, PDF versions of the paper, which publishes every Thursday.
0: Perfect. And if you missed that website, we'll have it on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Matthew Bajako, thank you so much for spending some time with us and getting us caught up on the fascinating politics of San Francisco.
2: Thanks, Greg. Really appreciate the opportunity.
0: We'll have links to all the websites Matthew talked about on our own website at OutBeatNews.com, and I've included a link there to the GLBT Historical Society's archive for the Bay Area Reporter, starting back in 1971 with Issue 1. It's really an invaluable resource of local LGBT history. Well, as we started out with tonight, it's tough in these tumultuous times to sort out fact from fiction in the news. But it's more important than ever that as a member of this community or an ally that you stay informed with accurate and current information. We invite you to follow our Facebook and Twitter feed using the links at OutBeatNews.com and to follow other reliable sources like the Bay Area Reporter. The President's budget proposal seeks to cut funding for public radio and to stations like KRCB that are committed to providing you with accurate, objective sources of news. Local long-standing news organizations and public radio stations like KRCB need your support to keep you informed. You can learn more about how to do this at donate.krcb.org. For now, our hour is up, but I'll be back next month with representatives from Sonoma County Pride who will be here to tell us about the move back to Santa Rosa for this year's Pride celebration and to share details about the three days of celebration they have planned. Join us next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long.
1: I love to change the world, but I don't know Broken down and tired of living life on the merry go round. And you can't find a fighter by you so we're gonna walk it out. Mountains, we're gonna walk it out and move. For that we have each other And we will rise We will rise We will rise oh, 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 We'll rise I'll rise up Rise like the day I'll rise up In spite of the age I will rise a thousand times